In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus said to his disciples, The kingdom of heaven is like... It's like this. And then as he does so many times, he tells them a story. It's like this, he said, A vineyard owner went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And Jesus draws this imagery straight from the Old Testament prophets. So he didn't have to explain anything, or at least not very much. He wouldn't have to explain who the characters in the story represented. The vineyard owner is always the Lord. The vineyard and or the people working in the vineyard, those are always Israel. They're always God's people. It's his vineyard. So as Jesus tells his story, Matthew, John, Peter, and all the rest of them, they can easily imagine themselves getting up that morning, leaving their wives and children, going to the town square in the hopes that somebody will have work for them that day. It was a common scenario. Any town square, you'd find men like this. Day laborers, though, were pretty much at the bottom of society. In many cases, slaves were better off because at least the master of a slave was obligated to put a roof over his head and that of his family and to feed them. A day laborer lived a meager hand-to-mouth existence. If there wasn't any work, he didn't eat. If there was work, he did it. He earned just enough to buy food for his family that day, and then he'd get up the next morning, already tired but ready to do it all over again, and over and over and over. If there wasn't work, either he begged or he and his wife and children went hungry. So Matthew and John and the others could imagine themselves arriving at the town square just before sunrise, carrying their own tools, ready to work. And they're glad when they see this man show up, and he offers them a denarius and sends them down the road to harvest his grapes. Now, a denarius was the going rate for a day's common labor. Again, it wasn't much, but they were glad their families would eat tonight, and then tomorrow they could start all over again. So these men, they worked, and they worked for a good three hours until mid-morning. And about that time, Jesus doesn't say what the motivation of this man was, I'm speculating. Maybe he was just a nice man. He kept going back to town to see if anyone had hired these men. Maybe he hired them because he didn't want their families to go hungry that night. Or maybe his friend had just come from the mountains, came to him and said, I was up on the mountain, rain's on the way. You need to get those grapes in. Rain's on the way, maybe tonight, definitely tomorrow. The harvest had to come in before the rain. So the vineyard owner, maybe that was his reason, he went back to town. And there were still plenty of men waiting to be hired for the day. So he tapped as many as he thought he needed, and he promised, I will pay you what's right. I know it's not a whole day, but I will pay you what's right. Go down and harvest my grapes. Noon came. Clouds started rolling in over the mountains. Rain was coming sooner than expected. So off to town the man went again. The sun was hot now. 
Matthew and the others could probably imagine themselves working hard in the vineyard. Maybe the day Jesus told them the story was a hot one. Maybe they could feel the heat pressing in on them. Thank goodness they were sitting under the shade of this tree, not carrying heavy baskets of grapes around a vineyard and into barns. They could imagine. They were in the story on that sweltering day. With all that heat kicking up dust as they shuffled around the vineyard, they were earning their denarius, that was for sure. Even those men who started at noon, even they would be exhausted by the end of the day. And in the back of their minds, the disciples are thinking, okay, the men working so hard, they're Israel, they're us. Where is this going? Jesus goes on. By mid-afternoon, maybe the wind had picked up. The clouds were closing in. They were dark. It was definitely going to rain tonight. So the man hurried back to town. The job's got to be done. There were still men waiting for work. They were probably expecting to go home empty-handed, going to bed hungry that night. Their children would, would, would cry. But they were still there because if they left the town square, they'd have zero chance of finding any work at all. So the man found them. He said, get to my vineyard and pick like the wind. I'll pay you what's right. So off they ran. They didn't waste a minute. The work wasn't so bad now. The clouds were were rolling in. There was a cool breeze blowing. And then a couple hours later, the workers were almost done. But not quite. It started to sprinkle. It was still an hour till sunset. But it was already dark from the, the rain clouds. So the man ran back to town while his foreman managed the men, getting the last of the harvest in. And he rounded up the few men left, the ones already about to go home empty-handed or, or maybe ready to bake some bread from someone somewhere. He called to them. Hey, an hour's pay is better than no pay at all, isn't it? So they went off to help the others finish. And they did finish. And here's where Jesus gets to the heart of that bit about the kingdom of God is like. As the thunder began and the rain started pouring, the foreman gathered the men in the barn, and the man, pulling him aside, said to him, Pay them their wages, but start with those men who came last. And in with the guys who were here all day. Imagine being one of those men who worked only an hour, who even if they could only buy a little food, still expected to probably be hungry that night. Imagine their reaction as the foreman puts a whole denarius in their hands. Again, it wasn't much, but it was a whole day's wage. And imagine the men who'd been working since sunup or maybe even mid-morning. They see this happening and they think, oh, did we hear wrong? I mean, it was a, a really hard working day. Maybe he's changed his mind. Maybe he's realized our labor's worth more than the original deal. They looked at each other. They murmured a bit. Someone said, no. A denarius for a day, that was the deal. That's always the deal. But if he's paying these guys who'd only worked an hour a whole denarius, maybe we'll get 12. 
or at least more than one. So imagine their excitement fading as the foreman goes down the line and he gives a denarius to everyone, to the men who had worked since mid-afternoon, to the men who'd been been there since noon, to the men who'd been laboring since mid-morning, and even, imagine their frustration, even to the men who'd been there all day since sunrise. Jesus says they grumbled. I mean, who wouldn't? I, I can even imagine, you know, impetuous Peter, who always speaks his mind, I can imagine Peter interrupting Jesus. Jesus, what a jerk! That's not fair! Jesus, I think you meant to say the kingdom is not like. So first the men grumble with each other, and finally one of them got worked up enough, he grumbles directly to the vineyard owner. What gives, boss? Those guys over there, they only worked an hour, and you have paid them exactly the same thing you paid us. We wore ourselves out working all day. Man, it was a scorcher today. Nobody expected it to get that hot. You've done us wrong. You paid them more than they should get, and and I think maybe we deserve more than a denarius because the work was harder than anybody thought it would be. The men were angry. But then the vineyard owner responds gently. Friend, I've done you no wrong. I offered to pay you a denarius for a day's work, and you agreed. That's the going rate after all. No one's ever grumbled about it before. I've given you exactly what we agreed on. Exactly what I paid you last year when you spent a whole day harvesting my grapes. Take your pay, go home to your family, be happy that you can feed them tonight. And be happy for these other men. They can go home and feed their families tonight too. You know what it's like to go home empty-handed? How can you be angry that their children will eat bread tonight? Friends, don't be angry at my generosity. And then no longer in the story, no longer telling the parable, Jesus looks around to his disciples and he says, so the last will be first and the first last. And with that, Matthew and John and Peter and all the rest of the 12, light bulbs went on. No, light bulbs didn't go on. They scratched their heads. They looked at Jesus. They were confused. The last will be first and the first will be last. You know, just four verses later in the chapter, in Matthew chapter 20, we read that James and John got their mother to put in a good good word for them with Jesus. Jesus just told them the kingdom is like, and then he said, the last will be first and the first last. And they got their mom to go to Jesus. And she said to him, declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Right and left, those are the places of the greatest honor. And of course, when the other disciples heard about this, they were angry. They were angry with James and John's because, of course, each one of them, they wanted to sit in those places of honor in the kingdom. And they're thinking, you've got to earn that spot. You can't get your mommy to go 
go begging to Jesus. You've got to earn it. But of course, that is exactly not what the kingdom of God is like. But hardly anyone understood, and that's because almost everyone had forgotten about grace. James and John were afraid that one of the other disciples might do something extra special or put in an extra day's labor or do some extra credit to earn some brownie points and earn greater favor from Jesus. I mean, imagine the jealousy that they had when Peter that one day confessed to Jesus, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, and that thing about on this rock I will build my church. Uh Uh-oh. Just when John, who could smugly tell people, I'm Jesus' best friend, just when he thought that Jesus was going to make him pope someday, Now Peter's got it. How dare he? So they're all vying for a special place in the kingdom. They're all worried that Jesus is going to give something special to one of the other disciples and not not to them, not to me. Nobody, or almost nobody, understood because almost everyone had forgotten about grace. But the Jewish people of all the people on earth should have understood the grace of God. They lived it every single day, and they had for more than a thousand years. God's grace was exemplified by the manna in the wilderness. That manna, like my Hebrew, vo- Hebrew vocabulary, Hebrew professor used to say about Hebrew vocabulary, it's new every morning. Remember in the Exodus, in the wilderness, the manna was new every morning. And there was always just enough for that day. God even miraculously provided for a little bit extra for those days, the Sabbaths, when you couldn't go out and gather the manna. And do you remember what happened if you tried to get more manna than you needed? If you tried to keep it overnight, it rotted and stank and grew worms. Brothers and sisters, God's grace is always just enough to meet our needs and to see us through the day. I think there's a reason why Jesus chose to tell his parable about those poor day laborers. Again, a denarius was just enough for the day. After you fed your family, there was nothing left to save. You went back to the town in the morning and hoped someone would hire you for another day and another denarius, and you would do that day after day after day. The only difference being that God's grace is not a wage that we earn. It's not a reward for good service. It's not a sign of special status. It's simply life in his presence, sustained by his goodness, new every morning. And it doesn't come because we negotiate it with him. It comes as we, by faith, enter into his covenant. He promises his all for us. In fact, he has given his all for us.
In his gracious love, he has given his son for our sake and made us his covenant people. And in return and loving gratitude, we give him our all to him and to his kingdom. We believed in the first place because we saw his goodness and his faithfulness manifest in Jesus and in his death and his resurrection. And we continue to believe because every single day we put out our hands and he pours his grace into them. Always just what we need for the day. Always what we need to accomplish the work he has set before us. And I think that too is a key to the parable. The men were summoned to work in the vineyard. Kind of like Abraham. The Lord called Abraham for a reason. He and his children were to be a light in the darkness. They were to make the Lord known to a world that had forgotten him. Israel was to be the people who lived with the living God in her midst so that the nations would see and know him and his faithfulness, his goodness. When Israel failed in that mission, the Lord gave his son to die on the cross and to rise from the grave in order to set his people to rights and to establish a new covenant and a new people. And so you and I carry on the mission. We proclaim the good news that Jesus is Lord. And we live the life of the Spirit before the eyes of the watching world so that they can see the faithfulness of God on full display. A faithfulness that none of the gods or kings of this age can compare with. And they come and they believe. And then the Lord pours his grace into their outstretched hands just as he has ours. And the mission goes on until the whole earth is filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the goal. That's the mission. That's why God has called us. This is what Jesus meant when he said, Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be given to you. That was not a promise of of abundant wealth or, or of power or of a position of privilege at his right hand over and above everybody else. Brothers and sisters, it was a promise of his grace, like the manna in the wilderness, always enough for today for life, for work, for ministry, for whatever struggles we face, and always enough to share with the people around us. Always enough to do the kingdom work that he has given us to do today. That's where our epistle dovetails into the gospel, I think. The gospel tells us about grace But because we are so prone to forgetting that grace is a discipline, the lectionary today gives us this passage from Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. I want to look at those four short verses again. It's 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27. Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. 
So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, if you haven't read 1 Corinthians in a while, it's helpful to recall the, the, the context there. Paul was writing to this church. He knew they were believers. They had stretched out their hands, and God had poured his grace into them. And God's grace was in many ways on display in that church. But in many other ways, they weren't putting that grace to work for the sake of the kingdom. They were using their spirit-given gifts to build themselves up instead of each other. They were abusing God's grace to justify sins. Sins that Paul writes even made the pagans blush. They were no longer seeking first his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, sometimes we need the reminder that the Christian life is not aimless. In calling us to himself, the Lord has given us a mission and a future hope. St. Paul likens the Christian life to running a race and boxing in a match. You don't just do it. You do it for a reason. There's a prize at the end. Serious athletes train. Sometimes we forget about that. I swim, and lately I've just been swimming. But I remember before the pandemic began, I realized, and like, this is really scary, in four more years, I'll be eligible to compete in the BC Seniors Games. And I was looking at the times for that 55 to 59 category and thinking, if I shave a few seconds off my 100 freestyle, I could actually be in running for silver, if I'm really lucky, maybe gold. So I figured out one of my other friends who's a year older than me and is faster than me is going to get there before I am, so forget that. But I started to discipline myself, and I started to train, and I started to shave those seconds off. And then they closed the pools, and, well, I'm way behind now. But last week we were joined by a young guy who wants to be a professional triathlete. And he's running us ragged. He's disciplined. He says, rest is for dead people. And I'm tired at the end of the workout. Serious athletes discipline themselves. Paul first uses the illustration of a runner in a foot race. If he's willing to discipline himself and put in that effort for a laurel wreath, how much more ought we to discipline ourselves to run this race that ends with the resurrection of the dead and new creation and life in God's presence? That, brothers and sisters, is what we're running toward. And we're called to bring the world with us. But instead of training, instead of discipline, how often do we just dink around? How much do we invest in things that don't ultimately matter? Instead of pursuing Jesus and his kingdom with everything we've got. Paul compares this to a poorly trained boxer, you know, who's, who's throwing punches at the air instead of his opponent. Aimlessly throwing punches will not win a prize. Instead, it'll probably end with your opponent landing a knockout punch on you. So Paul stresses the need to discipline ourselves, especially reining in our sinful appetites. That was a particular problem in Corinth. It's often a problem in today's church. He even talks about being disqualified in the end because of failure. I mean, what's that about? If we're saved by grace, how do we fail? Again, think of that grand biblical narrative of God and his people. 
I think too often we reduce things like God's salvation and his grace, we reduce them to just sort of abstract theological concepts. But it's important that we remember their place in the big story of God and his people. Think again of Israel delivered from Egypt by the Lord. I mentioned this before, but but let's expand on it. Remember the people of Israel, slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. They cried out to the Lord. He heard and he rescued. And yet he didn't just strike down Pharaoh and his army and set the Israelites free to just go and do whatever they wanted. Love you guys. (laughs) You're saved. I'll see you in heaven someday. Now go have fun. No, that's not it at all. Israel was his people. He'd called and claimed this people for himself and Abraham. In delivering Israel from Pharaoh, the Lord was claiming back what was rightfully his. And so he declared to the Israelites, you are my firstborn son. I will be your God. You will be my people. He led Israel through the Red Sea into the wilderness. He met them at Mount Sinai, and there he entered into a covenant with them. He gave them his law. For his part, his promise would be that he would be their God and all that that entailed. Their part of the covenant, their obligation was to fulfill the calling he had given them, to be the people who lived with him in their midst, and in doing that, to be a light in the midst of the nations. In their deliverance, in their calling, they found a profound uh, display of God's grace. And yet that grace called them to discipline. The Lord had work to do, He was going to set his fallen creation to rights. And his plan all along had been to do that through his people. We go all the way back to the beginning. Adam was created to be the high priest and steward of God's temple, of creation. And he messed that up. When the Lord called Abraham, when he saved Abraham's children from Egypt, it was to recreate that holy people that Adam was called to be originally, a nation of priests, a people to once again be his stewards on earth. So the law was the means by which they maintained the holiness necessary to be in the Lord's presence and to be his witnesses. So notice that the Lord's calling of Israel and his deliverance her from Egypt, they were all of grace. And yet to live as his people meant devotion and discipline to to that grace. They had a job to do, an important one. And so God made them stewards of his grace. And as we read through the Old Testament, Israel repeatedly failed in her disciplined devotion to the Lord and to the covenant he'd made with them. As the prophet said, it was a heart problem. And to fix that heart problem, Jesus brought forgiveness to his people, to those who put their faith in him and became a part of the renewed people of God. And he gave them God's own spirit to fix their heart problem to turn the desires of their hearts towards the Lord. And brothers and sisters, we are part of that new covenant community, the people who belong to God through Jesus, the people whom he's redeemed, not from Pharaoh, but from something even worse, from bondage to sin. And he's redeemed us so so that we might serve his kingdom. Jesus does not set us free so that we can go do whatever we want. 
hey, love you guys, here's salvation, see you in heaven, go do what you want until then. Jesus does not set us free so we can do whatever we want. So that he sets us free so that we can serve the Lord, but not half-heartedly. Not so that we live with divided loyalties. So that we can worship other gods and serve other kings like, like the Israelites did. Through Jesus we've been redeemed so that we can be faithful stewards of the Lord in this world. To do what we were created to do in the first place. To be the people who live with the Lord himself in our midst. And to be that light in the darkness. To be witnesses of God's grace and his goodness and his love. And to declare the royal summons, Jesus is Lord. To lift the veil, to give the world around us a glimpse of God's coming new creation. So that others will be drawn into it as we have. It's hard work, isn't it? Jesus has given us God's own spirit to turn our hearts toward him. But the world and the flesh and the devil still compete for our loyalties. We renounce them in our baptism, but they still compete for our loyalties. The gods and kings of the present age don't like the kingdom and they fight back and oppose us. Too often we try to live with with one foot in, in, in the age to come, but still with one foot in the present age. Our loyalties are still often divided between Jesus and the gods of the present age. And even in the church, we often put too much of our energy into things that don't ultimately matter. We might as well be sitting on the sidelines of the race. Others of us are like the boxer, wildly throwing punches, working up a sweat. But none of them ever landing where they need to go, where they'll do any good. Brothers and sisters, we owe the Lord our all in return for the grace he has poured out on us. The season of Lent is a time for us to focus on the grace that the Lord has poured out on us in Jesus. But before we get there, we've got these three Sundays with the funny Latin names. Septuagesima, Sexagesima, and Quinquagesima. That just means 70th and 60th and 50th as part of our countdown to Easter. These three Sundays of preparation remind us that grace in action must be coupled with discipline, with humility, and with love. If we are to be faithful stewards of the Lord's grace, we need to dedicate ourselves to that grace. We have to know it ourselves before we can share it with others. Brothers and sisters, commit yourself to the Lord. Give him your full allegiance as king. Get up each morning, and as you did in your baptism, renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil, and then go out to collect today's manna. Steep yourselves in the means of grace that God has given. Be disciplined in immersing yourself in the scriptures, in the Lord's word, in prayer, and as Hebrews reminds us, not neglecting to meet together, but exhorting one another to love and good works. And friends, receive the Lord's invitation to the supper. Here at his table, he reminds us of the sacrifice he made at the cross, giving his all, even his life, for our sake.
to forgive our sins and to defeat even death itself, to make his enemies his friends. Every week, the invitation has given. Don't ignore it. Don't put it aside, but take it up. Put out your hands and take the bread. Open your mouth and drink the wine. God's grace poured out for you in Jesus. Be strengthened to work in the Lord's vineyard. And remember that no matter how hard the work, His grace, if we will seek it, if we will ask for it, His grace is always enough. Let us pray. Father, in today's collect, we acknowledge that we who ought to be justly punished for our offenses have been mercifully delivered by your goodness and for the glory of your name. We pray that we never forget the reason that you have delivered us and that our priority in all things will be the glory of your name as we share your grace with others and proclaim the good news about your kingdom and about the Lord Jesus. Teach us to be faithful stewards of your grace, O Lord. Amen.